Welcome to the Garden Talk Podcast, where we interview growers from all over the world, both beginners and experts, seeking to learn more about what they know about gardening and how they do things in their garden. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, aka Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk Podcast. This is episode number 105. In this episode, I interview Dr. MJ Coco. He has been gardening for 25 years and is regarded as an expert on growing in Coco Coir. And that's what we get into in today's episode. He talks all about what cocoa is, rinsing it, buffering it, pH, EC, and so much more. I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring free gardening information of all plants to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Thanks to EC Infinity for sponsoring this episode. Their Grow 10 kits are incredible. You get their Ion Board LED grow light, their Grow Tent, which is currently the thickest on the market, their ventilation system, clip-on fan, and their Controller 69 to control it all. You also get their fabric pots, trellis net, plant ties, and trimmers. Definitely a good price for all that you get in the kit. I'll have a link in the description section below so you can learn more about these Grow Tent kits, and the discount code MrGrowIt15 works on both Amazon and their website, acinfinity.com. And we're back. Welcome to the Garden Talk Podcast. Today I am joined with Dr. MJ Coco. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm excited to be on the show. I'm excited to have you on the show. We actually met a few months back at MJ BizCon, so we had a little face-to-face in person, and we talked about you coming on the podcast, and we talked about something doing something a little bit different. I've never done this before. We're going to actually do back-to-back episodes with Dr. MJ Coco. So, I mean, your knowledge on both Coco and LED are just extensive. And I didn't really want to merge that into one episode. So I figured, hey, let's do an episode on Coco. Then the next episode will be on LED and it'll be back to back. So I'm really excited for this one. I think the audience is, is going to like it as well. Cool. I'm, I'm excited for it. it. Yeah. You know, there are two of the, the sort of things that I've devoted a lot of time and, and energy. I started off, you know, in this space, really talking about growing in cocoa. Um, and a few years ago, I got heavy into researching lights and doing the grow light calculator and all of that. So that's really where a lot of my passion has been for the last few years. But yeah, it's it's fun. I'm excited to, to sort of be able to explore both sides of that with you. Cool. So the way I like to start all episodes is really with an introduction. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? Yeah. So um, I have a PhD. I actually study um, economic and agricultural anthropology. I work primarily with farmers in Central America and Southern Mexico, um, peasant farming communities and understanding sort of how, how they uh, manage livelihoods, um, to put it very simply. So how they do their agricultural production and how they sort of make a living for themselves. Um, that got me, you know, as an undergraduate and as a graduate student doing horticulture and botany classes, um, uh, especially in, in grad school, I started doing sort of more specialized horticulture and agricultural classes to understand it and to be able to, to sort of work with farmers. So understanding both the, the, you know, horticultural and botanical side of agricultural and crop production, um, and to understand the economics and, and a lot of the social dimensions of, of that. Um, as a, a grad student, I was one of the supervisors of the, the university organic garden. So, 
Um, you know, we had the, a cool organic garden. Students could get little plots to, to take care of. We had some research going on out there and we had some classes that, that had a part of the, the garden where they were doing things. I actually taught a class on small scale food production in that garden later on. Um, so yeah, you know, in terms of, of that background, and then I went and did my, my research and, um, you know, lived in communities of farmers for about two years, um, doing my dissertation research, um, got really hands-on experience working in those kinds of, of communities, but still all dealing with, with, you know, other kinds of crops. I mean, those farmers grew primarily the Mesoamerican trilogy, corn, beans, and squash, um, and, you know, a few other crops uh, around the edges of that, um, working in the, in the gardens, growing, you know, all sorts of fruits and vegetables and, and things like that. And here in Southern California, where a lot of different fruits and vegetables can grow. Um, and, you know, it was actually in grad school that um, I, I was recommended medical for my arthritis, my, my, my rheumatologist, actually. And that, that sort of brought me into that dimension of, of horticulture. Um, but I'd been studying kind of horticulture and working with farmers for, for years leading up to that. Awesome. So lots of good stuff in your background in regards to gardening and farming and even on the consulting side of things and, and teaching people, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've always liked to teach. You know, one of the, the, the great things about sort of moving into this space in particular is all of our students are really interested to learn. Um, I, I teach university classes too, and man, you know, university students are primarily interested in getting a grade, um, and most of them will do what they have to do in order to get the grade, but they're not really interested in learning the material. Um, and so uh, dealing with growers who are growing plants and whether they're sort of, you know, commercial scale growers that I do consulting work with or small home growers that just have a couple of plants in a tent in their room, uh, they want to learn. I mean, they don't give a crap about doing well on the test. They need to make sure that they master the material. And like from a, a teacher's perspective, it's so much more like joyous to teach students that are motivated by learning rather than sort of just motivated by grades, um, which is really, I want to learn as little as possible and still get the grade that I think I deserve. That's sort of the mindset behind that, you know, and then there's this other cohort in, in universities that are, are just there because they don't know what else to do with themselves at that age and time in their life. And they were always told, you know, this is the next thing you're supposed to do. So they go there sort of somewhat mindlessly. I mean, the number of students in your standard university, they're actually primarily motivated by learning like 5% and you love them when you get those students in like a regular university class. But yeah, as you know, Dr. MJ Coco, I would say it's the opposite, like 95% of the students of the people that come and that I interact with are really anxious to sort of gain access to the knowledge. That's so cool. Yeah. I can imagine that makes your job a little bit easier. It's just so much more fun. Yeah. <laughs> You're not sort of force feeding people stuff and like, this is important. Is it going to be on the test? Yes, it's going to be on the test. It's just, what do you want to teach like that? <laughs> All right. So let's get into growing in Coco Coir. And uh, I guess first thing is to 
talk about the uh, pronunciation. I used to say Coco Core, and somebody had corrected me, and they're like, actually, it's Coco Coir. And I looked it up. I looked on Google and looked at pronunciation and blah, 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 and found out they were correct. Now, I'm not going to do the pronunciation police and say nobody should say Coco Core, <laughs> but I thought it was worth mentioning that I guess that the proper way to say it is actually Coco Coir. You know, I'm, I'm also a linguist, and I guess <laughs> I'm more of what we would call a descriptive linguist than a prescriptive linguist. So you're talking more like a prescriptive linguist. Like there's a correct way to do things and we should all follow that norm. And this is the prescription for how you're supposed to talk. That's how like your high school English teacher taught English, right? Like there's a proper pronunciation or proper grammar and, and all of that stuff. Most linguists that study real language, they, they're, they're descriptive. So they'll, they'll describe what people are actually doing rather than pontificate about sort of what they should do, but they don't, you know, like ending a sentence with a preposition or, or something like that. You know, your English teacher is likely to give you a prescriptive rule, but you go out and like, listen to how people actually talk in the world. And most of them break those rules all of the time. So with this one in, in particular, yeah, they're, I'm willing to accept different sort of pronunciations on it. Um, but I guess skewing closely to sort of the, the origin, it would be coir. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm often guilty of just pronouncing things that the way that they're written, especially on scripts. I did that quite famously in my how to buffer cocoa video, where not only do I call it cocoa core, but and, and I know better than this. I, I said um, cation instead of cation. But it, it's like almost impossible for me not to do that. Well, it is now because I'm sort of been pounded with that. But I was reading it. So reading that word written, I just I'm, I'm very tempted to pronounce it. And actually, since my background in Spanish, I'm very tempted to pronounce it according to Spanish pronunciation rules oftentimes. Um, That's funny. Well, tomatoes, tomatoes, right? We'll just, yeah, we'll just chalk it up as that. In the end, <laughs> tomatoes, tomatoes. Um, and what's really actually interesting is, um, from a linguistics perspective, I think is w watching how language does change and how particular people influence that language change. Um, so us talking about whether it's Coco Core or Coco Coya or, or however you want to pronounce it has some influence on you know how other people then go about talking about it. Very true. So what is Coco Coir? It's just coconut husk. So it's like the, the brown husk of the, the, the coconut fruit, um, which is dried and then ground into pieces. Um, and there's basically three different types of, of cocoa. You'll get like the fine particles that are almost like dust, um, which we call peat. It's cocoa peat. Um, and then you can have the fibers, which are like these stringy things, which are the cocoa fibers. And then you get like chips, which are like less broken down, still hunks of the, the coconut husk, basically. Um, the, the chips have the best uh, air holding capacity, um, although the fiber holds on to a lot of air too. So if you have a higher enough concentration of fiber, you'll have a good air holding capacity. The, the peat or the dust holds on to more water. 
um, and less air. So, it, you know, you want to have a, a blend of peat, fiber, and chips when, when you're growing. And through the course of time, the, the chips will break down into fiber and peat, and the peat breaks down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of peat, basically. Um, a lot of that's caused by root action. Um, we don't want to grow in cocoa that has too much of the finest peat. So oftentimes we'll rinse it um, through a colander or another screen or a sieve or something that, that lets the, the finest particles sort of rinse out and keeps the larger particles behind. Um, and, and doing that, you can actually recycle cocoa indefinitely um, because you're sort of getting rid of the oldest cocoa that's broken down the most each time and you'll have to add more cocoa on the top but um, I recommend growers do that with their with their cocoa grows there's no reason to sort of throw it out and get new cocoa okay and then when you get cocoa you can either get it in like a brick form or a bagged form those bricks of cocoa are compressed just like like the brick used to be compressed and it's kind of a lower quality but you can rehabilitate it to a large extent um the the bricks have a generally a larger proportion is dust so a larger proportion is the finer particles and i always recommend rehydrating it and rinsing it through a screen um and you'll yield less you're gonna lose a lot of that dust but that's kind of the point um, but you'll end up with a, a pretty good quality cocoa if you end up, if you sort of do that. Um, the bags, the bags usually have more chips and more fibers, sort of a larger particle size. Um, and you know, you yield more from the bag. The bags are often also pre-buffered. So in theory, you could use it sort of right out of the bag. Uh, there aren't a lot of brands of cocoa that I trust right out of the bag. So I almost always end up processing my cocoa to some extent before using it, even if I buy sort of a, an expensive bagged cocoa. But the, the processing is certainly less than it would be with a, a brick, which you have to go through several steps. And you rehydrate, then you rinse it through a screen, then you do a couple buffering soaks, then you drain it off, then you rinse down the residual EC so you don't burn your plant roots. And all of that, you know, it takes time, a um, couple of days. So the bag process, oftentimes, you know, some bag products, good bag products, I'll just put in a pot and run some water through it to saturate it and test the EC of the water that's coming out. And as long as that's low enough, I'll trust the cocoa, basically. Um, sometimes you have to run more water through it. Some products I'd recommend doing a buffering soak and then rinsing it down. But generally, there's just less work to do to get them prepared. They cost more money. Um, so, you know, each individual grower needs to sort of put their own drudgery to cost index, which is actually one of the things that I study with my, my, my farmers. Um, it's like, how much drudgery are you willing to invest in this? And how much of, you know, is just spending an extra 20, 40, 60, 80 bucks. And, you know, that drudgery are you willing to, to pay to avoid? Yeah. The, the 
rehydrating, rinsing, and buffering of the bricks is definitely time-consuming. I've done that uh, a handful of times, and uh, I personally prefer buying the bagged cocoa now to avoid that process. But you can imagine being in a different financial position and being like, I don't know, I got time to burn, and I do not have any money. So, you know, there's, there's different sort of people are at different points of that continuum. Absolutely. Let's get deeper into the rinsing and buffering because uh, I know there's quite a few people who have no idea what that is. I don't know how many growers have hit me up over the years with problems of their plant showing problems. They're in cocoa and I asked them if they rinse or buffer and they're like, what's that? So talk to us about rinsing and buffering. Why is it important? And how do you go about doing that? I know you have a really good, good video on it. So you can keep it pretty brief and we'll refer people to that video. But yeah, if you can kind of give us an overview here, that'd be great. Yeah, so cocoa, we talked a little bit about the dust, and particularly in a brick of cocoa, it's going to have more dust than you want, so you're going to want to rinse that dust out. Rinsing is largely just about sort of getting rid of the smallest particle sizes. You're also going to knock some of the sodium out of, of the cocoa if it comes with sodium, but most of that's going to be bound in in a, you know a cation um, bond, um, and you're not going to really deal with that until you buffer. So buffering is the next step. So rinsing, I just rinse through a, literally a colander or a sieve, a screen, and get rid of the smallest particles. Um, collect that, and you don't want to rinse it too thoroughly either. You don't want to get rid of all of the peat because the peat is really what holds the water. But you don't want it to just be sort of swimming in, in the smallest particles. And you'll see this when you start rinsing it out. There's like the water that comes out is brown. And after, you know, just a few seconds, it's no longer brown. And that, that's fine. You don't need to sort of like keep rinsing it out. Um, then you want to put it in a strong solution of CalMag. CalMag and iron, sure, but primarily calcium and magnesium. Um, which are both double-charged cations. And, you know, we talk about cocoa being sort of a, an inert growing media. And, and that's one of the things that we really like about cocoa. I would actually argue that the air-water ratio is a, is a better selling point of cocoa than just the inert aspect of it. Um, but it is pretty inert in, in that it doesn't interact with the nutrient water that, that we're providing. It doesn't interact with the nutrients. It just kind of like sits there like a sponge and holds the water, but doesn't engage in exchanges with them. The one exception to that is cocoa comes sort of naturally with some single charged cations that it will give up. And it take double charged cations out of the solution. Um, and that cation exchange, you know, generally cocoa comes with some sodium and some potassium. So um, K um, cations that are sort of already part of the cocoa. Um, and in the presence of calcium or magnesium, the cocoa will release that sodium and and that uh, phosphorus, sorry, that potassium, and grab onto the calcium or the magnesium. It creates really strong bonds with the calcium or the magnesium, um, and it's unlikely in any situation to release those calcium and magnesium. I often get this question like, once it's buffered, is that like? Those cation exchange sites are buffered. They have their calcium. They're happy. They're basically taken out of the equation. 
you can do almost anything with that cocoa uh, at this point. And, and that cation exchange site will not give up its calcium cation. Um, however, so one of the things that we do with buffering is we're just trying to get as many of those exchanges to take place as possible before adding plants, right? So we take this cocoa that's got this potassium and this sodium, and we soak it in really strong CalMag water, basically. And it releases all the potassium and the sodium and grabs on to the calcium and magnesium. And once it does that, it's, it's considered buffered. Um, if we don't do that in advance and we use unbuffered cocoa, and I don't know if you've ever had the, the misfortune of using really unbuffered cocoa, but it will suck all the calcium and magnesium out of your plants. And it's almost impossible to sort of keep up with because the cocoa will get the calcium and magnesium before the plants can get it. And almost no matter how much you provide, you're never going to provide sort of enough to get out of that deficit. Um, if you do a good job buffering before using the cocoa, you can definitely keep up with the CalMag requirements during the rest of the grow. They never fully go away. And, and that's important to sort of understand. Remember, we have cocoa chips and, and cocoa peat um, and the cocoa fibers that are, are sort of constantly breaking down, largely due to root action of the plants that we're growing. So as the plants themselves grow through, they break apart the, the cocoa um, and that exposes new cation sites. And that exposes sort of new potassium and sodium that the plants wanting to release and, and grab onto the calcium and magnesium. So the cocoa is always a little thirsty for calcium and magnesium. And in cocoa, we always sort of provide a bonus dose, which is not for the plant. It's really for the cocoa itself. Um, the other thing to sort of be aware of with cocoa is we're almost always running high in K. And that's because the cocoa has K. Um, growers often get themselves in trouble later in the cycle because they'll add a PK boost, um, a bloom booster, which just creates K-tox, so, so potassium toxicity. Potassium toxicity can lock out calcium and magnesium. Um, it can create other issues. So growers in cocoa often face issues when trying to use those, those PK boosters just because there's already a lot of K. So be aware of that other sort of dimension of it. So let's say they have a properly rinsed and buffered their cocoa, organic or synthetic nutrients. Let's get into that. So do you use or recommend organic or synthetic nutrients when growing in cocoa? Uh, it's an interesting question. In, in an outdoor setting, in field agriculture and in gardening, I always recommend organic models and really biodynamic models where we try to sort of cultivate the ecology on the farm. So the soil level and farm level ecology. So... You, I mean, to increase sustainability and, and decrease the, the throughput of chemical fertilizers, right, of, of fossil fuels. I mean, most of what we're growing our food with these days are nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus um, fertilizers derived from natural gas, um, a, a fossil fuel. And the the process to create them is incredibly energy and you know intensive. So um, they're they're made with and they're made from fossil fuels. 
Um, and you know, global agriculture on the large scale is is supported by that. When we think about sort of how we use fossil fuels going forward too, so much of our, of our global agriculture is sort of dependent on natural gas as a feedstock for nitrogen fertilizer. That like it, it, we're you know you could argue we're eating fossil fuel energy on a massive scale, um, which, which sort of puts a lot of those considerations into a different perspective, I think, than people are often used to looking at fossil fuels. Um, it's something that I'm really interested in, you know, since my undergraduate days is sustainability in agriculture. Um, and, it, you know, one of the rubs here, and it, it's something that we've all decided to sort of go past this, but Indoor farming under artificial lights is not sustainable. I mean, it's very energy intensive and um, it uses energy in sort of a, a wildly different way than farmers have ever used energy before. Um, you know, for the first 10,000 years that our species was farmers, like we used almost exclusively human and animal energy. Um, and as we started sort of supplementing fossil fuel energy over the last just, you know, 150 years, um, for the first half of that time, it was, it was basically for transportation of the food. But now, again, so much of the energy that we use in, in regular agriculture, outdoor agriculture, is in the fertilizers that, that we're applying to maintain crop yields. Um, and so... Like that, just use of energy and the sustainability of that have completely shifted into this dangerous sort of territory. And I think rightly, a lot of people have become concerned with global agriculture um, and sort of the, the source of our food and, and whether we'll be able to maintain these kinds of yields under biodynamic models. That was something that I looked at a lot as a graduate student. You know, how can we conserve, how can we maintain sort of the, the Green Revolution yields without using the Green Revolution fertilizers? Um, and it's possible, and we need to sort of continue to in investigate that. We definitely understand that crops are, you know, more efficient in, in their specific return when we're able to dial in nutrition. So crop yields, for example, in the global north, crop yields on um, conventional acreage is a little over, and this is somewhat dated information from like the, the 2010s, around 2010. Um, crop yields were about two and a half times um, as on organic cropland. Um, primarily due to, to fertilization issues. Um, in the global south, biodynamic farming is actually able to match the yields of conventional agriculture. But they invest a, a, tremendously, a tremendously more labor per acre than they do in the global north. And so basically, we're able to, to exchange 
sort of fossil fuel energy for human labor can can take over a lot of that. But where the cost of labor is high, those those balances don't work out. And I've spent literally years sort of trying to understand and, and asking students in questioning classes like, do you guys want to become peasants? Because like, that's one way we can create sort of a sustainable world is we all go back to being peasants. Um, but if we all insist on having these, you know, consumer lifestyles, it's, it's more sort of problematic and where we demand other people produce all of our food. So we don't have to produce any of it. Indoor agriculture, it's all about lights and it's all about maintaining climate and like we choose to do that because of legal concerns. And I think, I think, you know, that makes sense with some other crops, you know, they choose to grow indoors, other crops in places like Iceland, Iceland's got a thriving indoor horticulture industry for, you know, vegetables because they don't have any sun or not enough of it. And they got tons of geothermal energy. So energy is cheap. They can power, you know, LED lights indoors and, and justify growing lower value crops. Um, you know, otherwise we're spending so much energy on the lights and the climate control growing indoors. We have to be growing a high value crop. Otherwise it doesn't even make sense. And the amount of energy that we're spending on lighting absolutely dwarfs the amount of energy that we're spending on fertilizers just dwarfs it just like makes pennies out of it it's like the amount of energy that we're investing in fertilizers is now like no longer even part of the equation that makes sense to pay attention to and if we want to farm sustainably indoors a we have to recognize that we really can't we're choosing to do something that's unsustainable because there's no other way to do it and we've decided that you know a certain crop is valuable enough to us that we're making that that decision anyways basically and i think all you know growers that are growing indoors for legal reasons for other kinds of reasons are making that that decision like look growing this plant is important enough to me that like I'm, I'm doing that even though I've got to run these really powerful lights indoors. And even though, you know, it's not going to be the most sustainable thing in the long run. When you're making those decisions, I think it becomes imperative now that you think about how to limit your overall sort of consumption, how to grow the best crop you can with the least amount of energy. And since we're already sort of blowing our energy budget on lighting and climate control, then, you know, how do we tap into the best of what we know about all other forms of agriculture so that we can have these plants humming so that they don't, you know, have to want for anything and so that we can guarantee harvest success. And the reality there is the most sustainable. I mean, I've, I really looked into this before growing myself. The most sustainable way and the only real way that I could justify indoor horticulture coming from a background of, of sort of sustainable agriculture was to grow conventionally and to grow hydroponically. So soillessly, cocoa is a form of hydroponics. Um, I think that growing in cocoa is far more efficient with water than DWC. For example, and this is the reason I don't grow in DWC. You know, DWC growers dump far more water down the drain than cocoa growers do. Even cocoa growers that have the, 
this sort of awful name for this, which is drain to waste. And that is the way that I grow, drain to waste. But the amount of water that I'm sending down the waste is, is dwarfed to whenever a, a DWC grower has to change out their tanks and they're sending all their water down the drain or they're sending all their water someplace. Um, I'm only sending a cup a day for my little grow, you know, or a quart a day or something like that. Really small amounts. And I actually repurpose all of my runoff for houseplants. Um, just tiny amount of it. So drain to houseplant or whatever. Um, but yeah, so th that's basically, and, and, you know, there are ways to do this. You asked this original question with organics or conventional fertilizers or synthetic fertilizers. So I use synthetic fertilizers. There are some organic fertilizers that, that can be substituted for them, but I, I haven't found them to be, you know, an advent, an advantage from a sustainability angle in, in terms of thinking about how much energy are they going to slow my crop down at all? Um, because if I have to run, you know, an extra week in veg, I've blown my margins and whatever you're trying to, to save for me. Or if this puts, you know, in any way my crop at risk, like I've blown my margins. I'm also aware now that a lot of people sort of follow the way that I grow, you know, pretty closely in terms of my specific dosages of nutrients, my recipe, my frequency of fertigation, all of these things. And so it's important that, you know, cumulatively, we're aware of the impact that we have and, and that we're sort of doing this consciously in a way to, to try to reduce that. I get a lot of pushback from organic growers that think that their style of growing is responsible and my style of growing is, is sort of irresponsible. And I, I want to just suggest to all growers that it really requires thinking deeper through these problems and recognizing, especially in an indoor horticulture, like where does our impact really come from what, and how can we responsibly sort of work to, to minimize that. Um, so it was from that perspective that, you know, my background's not in, in grad school. My background was working with field agriculture, farmers that were using synthetic and kind of organic styles of, of fertilization, but like they weren't growing in cocoa core. They weren't growing hydroponically. Um, all of that, Th that really came when I decided to, to grow my own, um, indoors that, I, I wanted to be to figure out and to sort of use the experience that I did have and kind of I was still a grad student, sort of my penchant for doing that kind of research to figure out the best way to minimize this impact, to, to do the most efficient garden. This is also incidentally why I'm so sort of interested in lights and what I really test about lights is how efficient they are and sort of how well they distribute the light and all of that because we're doing this. If we're making that decision to grow indoors, let's do it as well as we possibly can. Understood. Yeah, I think a lot of my audience are indoor home growers, kind of similar to me. But I feel like a lot of folks are using synthetic nutrients. So, so let's narrow down the conversation a little bit to indoors. And let's, let's talk a little bit about, about using synthetic nutrients with cocoa. Before we get into like EC and pH and stuff like that, aeration options. I know there are some people who are adding in, like I used to add in perlite, some people add in pumice, vermiculite, lava rock. There's a lot of different aeration options. What aeration options do you recommend and at what ratio aeration to cocoa? 
It depends on container size. Um, container size depends primarily on watering frequency. Um, so if you're going to be the type of grower that only wants to, to water their plants once or twice a day, and I, I realize that might sound like pretty frequently, but it, I advocate high frequency fertigation in, in cocoa. So um, higher than that. So once or, or twice a day, um, you're going to want a larger container. Um, if you're going to go five, six times a day, you're going to be able to get away with a smaller container. And I encourage you to kind of think of the container that you're growing in as like the cup that you give like your, your guests at a party, okay? And so if you give them a small cup, you better be running around and refilling their cups all of the time, right? If you give them a larger cup, like, you know, you don't have to fill up their cups all the time. So watering, in this sense, is filling up the cup, right? Um, and... Yeah, if you're going to water six times a day, then you can grow big plants in a one-gallon container. And I, I totally endorse that style. Um, if you're going to only water once a day, then you can grow that same plant in a three- or a five-gallon container. Uh, and that would be a better option. Now, your question is actually about perlite, right? So the perlite ratio depends on the size of the container and to some extent, your watering frequency as well. Um, larger containers, I like to put more perlite in, more of that aeration. It, it, in general, it, it certainly aerates. Perlite certainly aerates. It's really what we're hoping to get out of the perlite is improved drainage. Um, cocoa holds on to water a little bit too well, basically. So... We like to encourage the water to, to drain out a little bit easier. And, and that's one of the, the good things that the perlite does. Cocoa, unless you have all dust, remember we're talking about like chips and you have fibers um, in addition to your dust, then cocoa stays pretty well oxygenated even if it's pure cocoa and even if it's at field capacity, which means like fully saturated. Um, there's still oxygen available to the plant. Um, so, but what happens if you're in a large enough container um, and, you know, it's the dissolved oxygen in the water accounts for a large proportion of the available oxygen to plants. And if you're watering infrequently, especially if you're watering less than once per day, Especially if the, the water sitting in the pots is above 70 degrees, which it almost always is in our gardens. After a few hours, there's not going to be a lot of dissolved oxygen in that water. It's going to be hypoxic. And if you have an area that doesn't have a lot of roots, um, so the roots are actually where most of the water gets taken up, right? We often think about the water sort of like just pouring through the pots, but we're, we're filling a cup and then the, the plant is like drinking that cup, right? This is one of the reasons we, we transplant up to make sure there's roots all the way in the center because it's really in the, right in the middle of like, you have a big pot 
right in the middle of that pot, the roots tend to grow around it. They grow out to the edges, they grow down to the bottom, and they'll leave this area in the middle of the pot that doesn't have a lot of roots sucking out the water, and the water is allowed to get sort of like stagnant there. If it doesn't have enough perlite to sort of vertically flow through, it'll become hypoxic, and that's basically a dead zone for roots because there's no oxygen for them. So if you're growing in like a big container, get a lot of aeration in the middle of that. Make sure that, you know, the water is going to continue to move through there because roots like that area less and it, it tends to become sort of stagnant and, and not as, as well sort of oxygenated. Um, conversely, if you're growing a big plant in a one gallon pot, you don't need perlite. In fact, Adding too much perlite just sort of cuts down on the amount of water that you can store in that pot because, you know, a one gallon pot that's full up with 100% cocoa can hold a little over half a gallon of water. Um, a one gallon pot that's stock full of like 50-50 cocoa perlite can hold less than half a gallon of water. Um, so you're, you're sort of cutting back sort of the reservoir function of the pot for the plants and that's going to require you to increase fertigation more. Um, so yeah, it, it depends. I go anywhere from no perlite to only like 10 to 20%, sometimes up to 50% perlite in a larger container with less frequent watering. So perlite is your go-to? You don't recommend like vermiculite or lava rock, any of those other options? Um, and perlite's definitely my go-to or one of the, the specific perlite substitutes. I, I don't think vermiculite is a good substitute for perlite and cocoa, for this purpose at least. Vermiculite tends to hold on to water more. Um, it, it does do some of the same aeration, but it's not as good at sort of aiding in drainage as perlite is. Um, lava rock can work for this. Um, there are other things that you can substitute perlite for, and I'm aware that some growers don't like to use perlite specifically. I will say that there's a couple of drawbacks to using perlite that should be mentioned, I think, whenever it's brought up. Do not allow yourself to breathe perlite dust ever, ever. It's rock dust. It, it causes, it's like so much worse than smoking. I mean, it's so much worse than like anything else you can do. Get a respirator or a ventilator, do it in an outdoor space, at least wear like an N95 mask or something. Just I see so many people either on sort of videos or in real life or walking through commercial facilities where people are dealing with perlite, just breathing in this cloud of perlite dust. Um, disaster. Don't, don't put yourself in that situation. It, it's rock dust. It, it kill you. So that's one of the issues. Perlite's also, you know, a, a mined resource and there's a, a limited sort of global supply of perlite. Um, but we're not sort of at a, a threshold. I actually think the peat is a bigger issue to be worried about and concerned of in, in those regards in terms of, you know, how, how sustainable the mining of the resource is. Good advice on the mask. I don't wear a mask and I probably should. I don't really hear people talking about the safety behind handling perlite. So I'll definitely be wearing a mask moving forward. Yeah. Get the vents on or whatever you can do to, I mean, whenever you pour perlite and get it wet right away. So knock down that cloud of dust, right? But if you get a bag of perlite and you pour it, you're going to have this like cloud of rock dust that you get to breathe in. Oh yeah. Let's switch it up. Let's get into pH of 
uh, you know, specifically when growing with synthetic nutrients in cocoa, what is the optimal pH range? It's hydroponic. So the plant is, for the most part, interacting directly with the water. It's not sort of mitigated by any other cation exchange or microbial activity or, or anything like that. So we keep generally for for hydroponic nutrients the pH between 5.5 and, and 6.5 is what's often quoted. I would never kind of push out those extremes. Um, calcium is more available at the higher end of that range. So early on, I, I usually recommend growers in cocoa start at like 6.2-ish. Um, but then by early veg have worked down, you know, in the high fives and allow the pH to sort of drift up. pH almost always drifts up if you're mixing nutrient water. So to set it like 5.8 and allow it to drift up to 6, 6.1, 6.2, um, you know, in that range, allowing it to drift back and forth a little bit ensures that plants have good access to the different chelated nutrients that are sort of more accessible at different points along that pH scale. Um, you don't want to drill it in at 5.6 for too long, basically, because calcium's not very available that low. You also don't want to sort of drill it in at at 6.4 for too long. Um, phosphorus isn't very available there. So keeping it kind of in the middle of that range. The other thing I suggest with most forms of hydroponics, certainly with any form of drain-to-waste hydroponics, um, is to only measure the inflow pH. Don't measure the outflow or the runoff pH. Now, in our DWC recirculating systems, you know, you got to measure both. It's all kind of the same thing. Um, and in DWC, you got to just measure the, whatever they're sitting in. But in a, a drain-to-waste setting where you're doing top feed in cocoa, the important thing about pH is that the water that you're providing has nutrients that are accessible. You are not, I really can't stress this enough, you are not trying to like change the runoff pH by altering the inflow pH. That's a fool's errand. I've seen dozens and dozens of growers torch their plants by doing that. The runoff pH starts to drift high, often is what happens. And so they'll just go lower and lower and lower with the inflow. And they're telling me I'm feeding at five and I'm still getting these plant issues and my runoff is still 6.8 or something. It's like, okay, stop feeding at five. <laughs> like you can't, you can't do that. That's a problem. You should never God, so you can chase your tail like that so easily and just run yourself right out of sort of what the acceptable range is. So much so, I tell growers, literally don't measure the runoff pH. Expect it to swing because because of cation exchange with the plant, um, you know, things are going to happen to that water that's going to knock around that pH. Oftentimes, it's not a problem. Um, we'll never look at the pH, the runoff pH, in, except as a secondary sort of diagnosis, diagnosis tool. If you're having problems with, with maintaining EC, for example, if your runoff EC is always high, so you do check the runoff EC, but not the pH. But if it's always high and we can't knock it down, eventually I'm going to tell, okay, let's figure out what the EC or the pH is. And we'll try to get deeper into a diagnosis about what's going on like that. But 
No, as part of your general practice, make sure the water you're providing to the, the plant is in the correct range and just don't even worry about what the runoff's coming in at. I'm glad you mentioned that. I've always had good luck going 5.8 pH going in. And when I first started using cocoa, I was checking the runoff. I was coming across that same exact issue that you mentioned. It's like, why is it 6.8 pH? Why is it 7 pH runoff? Right. And so I was right. scrambling. And, and it's so tempting to go like 5 and then lower on the inflow, right? <laughs> I, re- I read to ignore the runoff pH. And so ever since I've been doing that, my plants have been fantastic. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that one. Yeah. Now, as Maybe far as... Water that, they, that you're giving it to them. And that's the cool thing about, about this style of, of growing anyways, is like no matter how screwed up the situation's gotten in their pot, like I can still give them good water that I know is, is correct now. That's the most important thing. Give them good water that you know is correct now. Um, now, EC, sometimes we do sort of, if the EC is getting too high in the runoff, you go lower on the inflow to sort of correct for that. Um, and I don't know if that's where you're going next, but that's probably where we yeah, should. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about next is EC, or, or some people actually you know measure PPM instead, You know, same thing, just different calculation, but different stages of growth, the plant has different nutrient requirements. Some people start with a low EC and then work their way up. Talk to us about EC and cocoa. Yeah. So first, let's talk a little bit about EC versus PPM. EC is a measure of the electrical conductivity. And if you have an EC or a PPM or a TDS or what's just called a water quality meter, what it's measuring is EC. It's got a little probe, two little electrical probes. It's passing an electrical current through the water, and it's measuring sort of how easy that current flows through the water. Um, what, why that's important is, well, a few things. But it, that tells you how many sort of dissolved solids are in the water. If there's no dissolved solids in the water, then, you know, it's very hard to pass an electrical current through water. But if you have a chock full of calcium, then it's pretty easy to pass a current through the water. So the EC reading tells you sort of how salty, because all those things that are dissolved in the water, we can just consider them and, and think about them as being salts. Okay, so... It's basically telling you how salty the water is. Now, PPM is parts per million. And parts per million tries to tell you how many sort of parts per million in this water are are different things. So, for example, how many parts of calcium and phosphorus and iron and potassium and sodium like are in this. Now what a PPM meter does is it measures the electrical conductivity and then using a formula, it says, okay, if the electrical conductivity is this, then I assume so much of this water, so much of that is coming from calcium because in most water, in most places around the world, the bulk of the electrical conductivity comes from calcium. Calcium is a double charge cation. So it has sort of a, a bigger impact on electrical conductivity than on PPM. Each unit of calcium 
there's only one ppm but has a double charge so if you have one unit of calcium and one unit of sodium you know you're gonna have your ppm would be maybe two out of a million right um but your electrical conductivity is going to be higher because of that calcium being one of the two so in order to make an estimate about sort of how many how much stuff is in the water all we know is how easy it is to pass electricity through it how much stuff is in the water it, you know there's different formulas for for figuring that out and this is why we have different ppm scales in europe there's less calcium in the water than there is in the americas in general so when you're making an estimate about from electrical conductivity to parts per million you're going to assume that sort of there must be more other stuff because I think there's a little bit smaller ratio of calcium and, and that gives them sort of the scale, the 700 ppm scale in the United States where calcium is, is tends to be in larger proportion throughout the Americas, calcium tends to be in large proportion, we use 500 scale and that's just a, a different formula for going from you know, what the meter's measuring is the electrical conductivity to like different assumptions about what must be in that water to arrive at a guess. And it's really just a guess about what that PPM is. So if you have a PPM meter, your meter's measuring electrical conductivity and then using a formula to guess what the actual PPM is. There's another way we can approach coming at PPM, right? Where we could like get a, a a, a scale and you know dry nutrients and we can actually weigh out and and know exactly sort of how many parts calcium and how many parts phosphorus and how many parts you know everything that that we put in the water and we could describe that and you know you can reverse engineer this if you get good information from your nutrient companies in terms of what your ppm actually is and from that angle we think about ppm in terms of dosing like how many parts per million do we want of calcium how many parts per million do we want of phosphorus how many parts per million do we want and i think when we're thinking in terms of parts per million like people tend to think about it in terms of all these different nutrients and like you know that's one thing that i often get from people is like well why does the ppm matter doesn't it matter like what the ppm of nitrogen and and phosphorus and and you know potassium is why do i just need one number that describes all of that and and that's a damn good point we don't need one ppm number and that's that's not why we're measuring EC. Now, if all you have is a PPM meter, you can basically sort of crib off of that because what your meter is actually measuring is EC anyways, right? But what we're doing this for and why we measure it has nothing to do with making sure there's enough nitrogen and enough phosphorus and enough potassium and enough calcium and, and making sure those dosages are right. We never use electrical conductivity to measure dose of specific nutrients. We measure electrical conductivity to understand the overall salinity of the water. Because the overall salinity of the water, it affects the plant's ability to get water. Not the plant's ability to get nitrogen and phosphorus and calcium. Like we basically assume all that's there because I followed a recipe and I'm using like reputable nutrients, right? So the ratios better be there based on the products that you're using. But if you provide too much of them and you're giving your plant the, this water that's then really salty 
the plant will not be able to get the water. So we need to be able to keep the, the sort of overall electrical conductivity in a range where the plant, A, sort of is trained for it, and B, expects it. Um, and, and for the most part, I, I think growers try to sort of push their plants a, a little bit too much in electrical conductivity thinking about it in terms of, I want to provide more nutrients. I want to provide more nutrients. I want to like push the gas pedal. But what you don't realize is as you're pushing the gas pedal, you're making osmosis harder. Um, so in order to get water, right? If there's like a cell membrane, there's water inside the root. And then there's water like in the cocoa, in this case, on the outside of the root, right? If the water outside the root is really salty, and the plant gets water through osmosis. So the plant needs to increase the, the concentration of the solution of the water inside the root. Basically, it does this by manufacturing sugars so that there's a higher concentration of sugars in the water inside the root than the concentration of salts in the water outside the root. And, and that allows water to flow into the root because water flows from osmosis across that sort of gradient from the area of, of lower concentration to the higher concentration of, of dissolved solids. Um, so your plant can be trained for a higher, a higher electrical conductivity, basically. You can like gradually work plants up and up and up and they'll keep manufacturing more sugars and more sugars in their roots to be able to sort of continue to absorb this water despite the increasing salinity. And some growers can get away with sort of tra training their plants to take a pretty high electrical conductivity. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's beneficial, but like plants can be trained that way. But if you jump electrical conductivity too fast, if they've been used to say like 1.0 and you suddenly go to like 2.0, like you've doubled it, there's not going to be enough sugar in the roots. And there's going to be so much salts in the water outside the roots that water literally gets sucked out of the root. Have you ever poured salt on a slug? That is what happens in this situation. So water actually can get pulled out of the root through osmosis. So the reason we test electrical conductivity is all about osmosis. And it's really all about keeping that electrical conductivity in the range that the plant is expecting. If it goes down too much, the plant starts taking in more water than it wants to take in. It quickly has to convert those sugars to starches and, and sort of to, to stop that process. That, that requires energy that the plant is not growing with. And if the electrical conductivity quickly goes up, then the plant has to manufacture new sugars using energy that now it's not using to grow with. So if you're swinging the electrical conductivity up and down and back and forth, I know a lot of growers do an alternating flush where basically it's one watering at like a really high EC, the next watering plain water, the next watering really high EC, the next watering plain water. Your poor plant is just like, oh, I, I, it's salty. I got to increase sugars. Oh, it's not salty. I got to process those sugars into salts or into starches. Oh, it's salty again. I got to manu... And you're just making your plant work every single day to adjust to the salinity level of the water. So it's sort of the... <laughs> 
The number one thing that, that I think, if you're using, you know, an EC of your, and some people fertilize with much lower ECs, and that's sort of okay to go back and forth in, in terms of that. But it, it's, in a style like cocoa, certainly, you'll pick up a lot if you just go to feed every time at the right dose. Keep, plants love consistency. Plants really love consistency. That's like my number one sort of theoretical idea about plants. Um, keep, just keep them at that level that they're good with the electrical conductivity. Don't be swinging them around. And they'll be able to sort of invest much more energy into growth than, than they would if you're swinging them around like that. Um, so when we're growing in cocoa, we want to know the electrical conductivity of the water that goes in. We have, I have a fairly low target. Uh, 1.5 is pretty much the, the highest I'll ever put my inflow at. Um, so it's 1,500 or 1.5 on an EC scale. And, you know, we want to monitor the, the runoff so that the runoff is not getting too much higher than the inflow. Um, so if I'm going in at 1.5 or 1500, and again, this is like late flower, like that's the highest that I ever get my inflow EC up to. Um, 1.2 is sort of where I'd be in veg for most of the time or an earlier flower. Um, so if I'm going in at say 1.2, then I want my runoff to be within 1.5. 1.6 is gonna start raising my eyebrows. It goes above 1.6 and I'm gonna start to take action to bring the runoff EC back down. Um, so I wanna keep it within 300, well, within 400 is usually okay, but in that range, so above what the inflow is. Um, usually we can expect that the electrical conductivity will go up in between watering events. So, when you think about the water that you're adding to the top of the plant, that's new water. The water that comes out the bottom is not that water. The water that comes out the bottom is old water. It's already been sitting and that kind of gets pushed out the plant as what new water gets added to the top. That old water has been sitting there for a while and we would expect that the EC is going to be higher because generally the plant removes water faster than it removes nutrients. Um, and so nutrients sort of accumulate in the pot and the, the electrical conductivity goes up in between fertigation events. Um, and if we notice that it's going up too much, so the runoff is now like two, right? I, I fed at 1.5 or 1500 and it's coming out at two or 2000, then I probably need to feed more frequently. That's the first thing that I would think. I'm, I'm giving too much time in between these events and that's allowing the EC to creep up too high. Increasing the frequency or the decreasing the interval between feeding events is likely to resolve that issue. And that's the best way to resolve that issue. Um, if you can't for whatever reason, um, you know, you can try increasing quantity, but that results in additional runoff or lowering the, the inflow electrical conductivity to sort of allow for a light or larger rise. Now, growers that are in, that are only able to, to fertigate like once or twice a day generally have to sort of allow for a larger rise than growers that can fertigate, you know, five or six times a day. So lots of good information there. One area I actually want to get into, which is somewhat controversial, 
inoculating with microbes, specifically when growing cocoa and using synthetic nutrients. Now, there are some people that say it's beneficial. They've seen a benefit inoculating with microbes, utilizing microbes during their grow. There are other people that say this is completely false. You should not be inoculating with microbes because the medium's inert. The nutrients are already in a form that's available for the plant to uptake. So the microbes don't have any value. What's your take on that? Uh, You know, I certainly think they have less value than they do in other styles of fertilization. Um, But regardless of style of fertilization, there are some microbial activity that works in the synergy in in the rhizosphere. So in, in the roots that aid in nutrient uptake, um, even in a, a cocoa grow, even in a DWC grow, uh, even in a DWC grow that, that's running sterile, um, you know, with like a high concentration of hydrogen peroxide, um, there are still symbiotic relationships with bacteria in the roots. So there are like every style of growing <laughs> sort of requires some bacteria in some styles we need to maintain that better and um you know i think organic growers that are depending on sort of breaking down organic fertilizers um, into sort of plant accessible forms can really get a huge boost from sort of inoculating with some bacteria or inoculating with different microorganisms at, at the right time of their grow um and you know, treating that. One of the challenges with any kind of synthetic drain to waste system in particular is, you know, the whole idea of drain to waste is we're getting rid of some things. We're sort of flushing a little bit out each watering event. um, And it makes it somewhat harder to to maintain uh you know microbial communities we're also not necessarily feeding them anything so you know in organic nutrients growers sometimes use stuff like for example a fairly famous one is molasses um which is really used primarily to feed you know microbes that then feed the plant it's not necessarily used to feed the plant directly um and, and you know, if you're not using those things, it becomes a little bit sort of less beneficial. Um, but there are still times and places for that. I don't do a, a great deal of inoculation, um, but I'm aware of that. I kind of lean towards the side where we are able to take control of a lot of the fertilization and sort of, you know, a, a lot of what the plant's able to absorb and, and uptake. Um, I guess the downside would be wasting money and resources using a product that you're not sort of getting a a benefit from. Um, but I, I don't think that there's a a downside in terms of, you know, doing that is going to screw up your plant or is necessarily going to cause problems either. Um, so I like to, I always like to separate practices, grower practice, because there's all sorts of different grower practices out there into things that are, you know, beneficial, harmful, and then probably not either, um, you know, beneficial or harmful practices. And I, I would put a lot of the ways synthetic growers use microbes as probably not beneficial or harmful. Um, 
at least in the root zones like that, it, it it's it's tough. Um, I mean, I, I suppose on the other side of this is that is one of the reasons why we're growing this style, um, why we're investing in in those nitrogen fertilizers, for example, at this scale. I think that it makes sense. But we're we're like I said at the top of the podcast, we get those nitrogen fertilizers from natural gas and in a really energy intensive process in order to sort of separate the nitrogen from the the hydrocarbons. Um, and I, you know, at the scale that we're growing and considering these other things, I, I, I tend to think that that makes it worth it. And that does sort of alleviate the need to practice deep ecology within our gardens. Um, I still like taking that ecological approach where it makes sense to, and where it makes sense to at that point is more in sort of the IPM side on the pesticide side on the, you know, beneficial insects and, and that ecological approach in terms of working with biology to solve our problems as opposed to sort of trying to be God. Um, but I, I'll admit there's a certain aspect of my style of growing where I'm trying to sort of be God in this situation. I figure I have to create the sun for these plants. So uh, I'm going to try to sort of hand feed them everything else as well. That makes sense. So we are coming up towards the end of the episode here, and I wanted to ask you, is there anything else in regards to growing in cocoa using synthetics that you wanted to cover in this episode that we didn't cover? You know, I think we covered a lot. So, you know, I I appreciate sort of having the opportunity to talk about those sustainability angles on it. Um, I I don't think that that's sort of the only reason to grow in cocoa, but I, I think that it's important. It's a point that I like to make to people because it's something that's important to me. And if you, if you guys are interested out there in the audience in terms of sort of being sustainable with your home grow, to think more about some of these other dimensions. I think sometimes choosing quote unquote organic options is sort of like, you know, in maybe more about the, the karma relief as opposed to the actual environmental relief that, that you're getting out of that in certain situations. So to think through this, and and I think that that's important. I think talking about calcium and magnesium in cocoa is always important in sort of getting that message about buffering and continuing to provide a, a CalMag dose in the water. Um, High-frequency fertigation, you know, the fact that cocoa, even at field capacity, holds on to adequate oxygen for the roots. So I'm definitely on the side that there is no such thing as overwatering, really in any kind of agriculture. What happens isn't that the plants have too much water. What happens is that the plants don't have enough oxygen. So all of the things that we're used to thinking about in terms of quote unquote overwatering, and if you're coming from peat or if you're coming from heaven forbid soil, which isn't peat, most growers that think they're growing in, in quote unquote soil are actually growing in peat. Soil in, in this sense would be like dirt, like, you know, sand, silt, clay. Um, you're used to having to really limit the amount of water that you provide or having to create a dry bag period and all of this is really about maintaining adequate oxygen for the roots. It's not about starving the plants of water, but the only way to get them adequate oxygen in the roots is starving them from water. But if if overwatering was just about overwatering, like DWC would not be a thing. It wouldn't be a way to grow plants, right? Because they always have too much water. It's not about too much water. It's about oxygenated water. Um, and 
Yeah. So cocoa can be watered almost constantly because it, it, it maintains adequate oxygen. And when you're watering it, you know, frequently a lot of the oxygen itself comes from the dissolved oxygen in the water. Um, it's important to keep your water, if you're depending on that, below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So I usually like to keep my water right at like 68 degrees Fahrenheit because above 70, there's not it, it, the ability of water to hold dissolved oxygen basically drops off a cliff at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Like at 68, water can hold a lot of dissolved oxygen. At 72, it can hold almost none. So it, it really helps to sort of think about that in terms of water temperature. That's also if you're ever running a res with these systems to keep the res cooler, because if it gets above 70 degrees Fahrenheit, the oxygen levels drop and that's when you start to grow bacteria in your tanks and you're going to have to do cleaning more frequently and all the rest of that. So if you have a watering system or a tank that you have to clean all the time, get it a little bit colder, drop it below 70 degrees and, and you'll sort of resolve those issues. Um, Ah, I, I think that's most of it. I could probably ramble on for a few more minutes, but I think we did cover a lot of the, the key points. And, you know, I got a lot of other um, resources and, and articles, um, and videos on this stuff. So if you're interested in, in more of that, I invite you to, to come and check out our stuff. Definitely some good information there. Uh, yeah, we touched upon a lot, you know, growing in cocoa, using synthetics. I mean, I think that we, we could even do another episode in the future at some point, cocoa and organics or even cocoa yeah. and synthetic, right? Because a lot of people are mixing the two and growing the cocoa. Yeah, so. Yeah, maybe we could do something like that in the future. You know, this organic mood is like, I'm going to take what makes sense from different things and apply them to my grow. And, and I like that style of growing where, you, you know, you think through things and you figure out what makes sense as opposed to just going with something because of the label that it has or thinking that it's safe or not safe because of the label that it has. So I, I endorse and, and sort of I identify with that style. If you guys tuning into this want to see that talk, Definitely comment below and let us know you want to see a part two on Coco, and we can definitely get into that. But yeah, let's wrap things up. Final words. How can the listeners find you? And do you have anything upcoming in the future that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I have a, a YouTube channel, Dr. MJ Coco on YouTube. Um, I have some videos like we mentioned about cocoa um, and growing in cocoa, like my germination tutorial. I do a lot of, of grow light reviews, and I know next time... That, that we come on, um, we'll talk about horticultural lighting and sort of what we're interested in, in in horticultural lighting, how to compare, evaluate different lights. And so you'll find a lot of that kind of content on my YouTube channel. Um, I also run the website, CocoaForCannabis.com. Um, it's where you'll be able to find uh, my articles. We have a, a big community. Um, we do grow challenges, which are basically collaborative grow-alongs. Um, right now we're in the middle of the, the New Year Grow Challenge, which started on January 1st, um, and a few hundred growers growing together in that. Um, we also find all my, my grow light reviews and everything else there. So and those are the two big ones. I'm also on Instagram um, and, and do some things there, but I do some other podcasts and stuff. But um, yeah, check out my YouTube channel and come visit us. 
Awesome. Well, I'll definitely have a link to YouTube channel down in the YouTube video description section below so you can easily get to his channel. And stay tuned for next week. Next week, he's going to be on again, Dr. MJ Coco, and we're going to talk about LED. LEDs are, are the present and the future of, of horticultural lighting. There's really sort of no question about that. Um, growers sometimes hit me up with questions about like, well, something else is going to come next or some new technology. It's like, eh, eh, maybe, but LEDs are already about 90% efficient in terms of energy transfer. So it, it's, it's hard to see sort of how another technology could come along and be much more efficient than, than that. They're pretty phenomenal in, in terms of sort of how LEDs themselves work. I think understanding a bit more about them can really help growers become better sort of consumers of grow light fixtures on the market too. Because I think a lot of manufacturers are taking advantage of the fact that growers don't know a lot about indoor lighting for horticulture. And so um, manufacturers are able to sort of manipulate growers and, and try to convince them of a bunch of BS. And that's been happening for years and my big passion there is to try to arm growers with sort of the, the knowledge that they need so they're not sold a bill of goods, right? So that, that they actually can go out there and evaluate grow lights and, and make good product decisions. So, yeah, I definitely look forward to, to getting into that and talking about how to evaluate and why, even what we're looking for, why LEDs are, I say, the future of, of horticultural lighting, all of that. So I'm, I'm excited about that topic. I'm excited for that one as well. So look forward to that next week. Uh, as always, hit the thumbs up button. Also subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single weekend, I'm releasing a new Garden Talk podcast episode. I'd love for you to tune in. Dr. MJ Coco, once again, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, can't wait for that talk next week. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Peace out, everyone. Take care. It was a pleasure. Grow love, everyone.